they always seem to remember even if I forget. So let's uh, follow along then and and listen to the holy, uh, inerrant word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that this morning you would speak to us from your word. As we see who who Jesus Christ is, we pray that he would be high and lifted up. We know that he is high and lifted up as he reigns and high from heaven, but he needs to be lifted up this morning in our praises, that we come today to exalt him. He needs to be lifted up in our hearts, that we have regularly put him first in our lives and acknowledge the, the true position that he bears. Lord, I pray that you would comfort us and encourage us this morning to hold fast to that great confession of the faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God the Son. And He has been resurrected from the dead and reigns over all things. In Your name we pray. Amen. Sometimes I think we forget just how important certain truths of Scripture are. Certain ones, I I dare say, matter more than others. And what I mean by that is is sometimes you can look at a a passage of Scripture, a particular verse, a a particular phrase, and and good, well-meaning, godly Christians can disagree over what precisely that that passage means, or what precisely a a particular phrase means, or sometimes we even just debate meanings of, of Hebrew and Greek words, and that's okay. There are other truths that we cannot disagree over and still call ourselves Christians. Jesus Christ is God the Son, the Son of God. And this is one of those issues that that Christians cannot be divided over. That Jesus Christ is God the Son means that He is equal in power and glory with the Father. It's an issue that is at the core of Scripture. It's one of these non negotiables. And I think there is a a temptation in our day and age to to think that certain truths are are so obvious. We are so used to hearing these things. Maybe even some of you, like me, grew up in Sunday school and you, you think to yourself sometimes, well, I know that. Let's move on to something that I don't know. But this is one of those core truths that even if we know it, we need to make sure that we're staying grounded upon it. It has always been somewhat fascinating to me that, that things like prophecy conferences, 
become all the rage in the church. Let's, let's talk about the minutia of, of revelation that nobody can agree on. Does this represent helicopters? What kind of war is this? What is the mark of the beast? And, and we will uh, go to great lengths to write out these very detailed charts. And, and praise God for the guys that study the book of Revelation. But it has always been uh, something that I sort of scratch my head at that we'll go to one of those and spend hours poring over something like that. But when it comes to the deity of Jesus Christ, we sort of go, and, and I've been guilty of this, we sort of go, well, I know that. That's so basic to my Christian faith. But I tell you what, what can become uh, neglected or unimportant in one generation will be forgotten in the next what becomes to us in our day and age sort of, well, everybody knows that. That is basic to being a Christian. That is at the core of who we are. Don't worry about that. Let's go on to other things. That will become the very doctrine that is neglected in the next generation. And we see that even in our day and age. I want to kind of also start this morning with a little bit of a, a history lesson, if you will. A little bit of a, a story uh, there was a man named Athanasius, and he lived in the early 300s of the church. Uh, he was very active from about 330 to, to the 360s of the church. So we're talking only 300 years after the death of Christ. We're talking, you know, 1,700 years uh, ago for us, very long time ago. This was a man who was very passionate about who Jesus Christ was. That Jesus Christ was truly God. And he lived in a, in a day and age where uh, the majority of the church over time was, was beginning to, to slide away from this. It doesn't really matter if, if Jesus is God and they would debate what that means and they would, they would argue over it. And, and Athanasius stood firm. He was uh, the bishop, uh, like a pastor, uh, in the city of Alexandria in, in northern Egypt, right uh, near the coast. And he was driven out of his city, out of his pulpit, five times sent into exile because of preaching who Jesus really was, the Son of God. The longest time he was exiled was a period of seven years. The second longest was a period of six years. So we're not talking about a guy who just gets run out for a week or two and then, then comes back. This guy was kicked out of the city, out of his churches, uh, out by some of the leaders of the churches at the time. And yet he held fast to the truth that Jesus was the Son of God. It's interesting, one of the stories, he was being chased by some men and he was being chased actually down the Nile River in a, in a boat. And, and they weren't far from catching him. And, and at one point, he's coming back down the river uh, to return towards the city. And these men chasing him are, are coming up the river. And they, the, they come up upon him and they, they call out to the boat and they say something like, you know, is, is Athanasius uh, far ahead? And, and the response was from Athanasius, you're close, hurry now and you can catch him. And he continued to go down the river and they continued to go up the river and they passed right by him and he uh, returned to the city. This was a man whose life was often in danger because he held to a simple, basic Christian truth that Jesus Christ was God 
the Son. And to say Jesus Christ was God the Son, Athanasius firmly held that Jesus Christ is equal in His power and glory with God the Father, even though they are Father and Son, different persons. And I have to stop and ask ourselves and say, would I hold to these truths with that kind of intensity? Would I be willing to be driven out of my home, driven out of my my job, flee for for seven years at a time, and then have it happen not just once, but, but five times in my life, all because I'm defending who Jesus is. I think for many of us, myself included, there would be overwhelming temptations to compromise, to say, well, I can still preach Jesus, I'll just not talk about Him being God. But that will not stand according to Scripture This morning, our main point is that Jesus is over all creation and also for us becomes the ruler within his creation. So this passage breaks down into two simple parts. The first part, uh, making very clear that Jesus Christ is truly God. The second part, making very clear that, that in the works of Jesus, he has come down into his creation so that he might be the head of the church and reconcile all of creation to God. So first this morning, Jesus is God over creation. Look with me at verse 15, if you will. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15, for he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So an image is a a, a imprint, if you will, a a representation, a a stamp makes an image. And in the ancient world, uh, the Caesars, the, the, the rulers who often proclaimed themselves to be gods, they would they would take these coins and they would they would stamp them with their image. Uh, if you pull out a dollar bill, it has an image of one of our presidents with it. And, and it will say on it, this note is legal tender by the authority of of the United States government. That piece of paper literally does not uh, mean anything unless the U.S. government says this equals a dollar. In the ancient world, a coin had the image of a Caesar on it. It bore his mark of representation. And and that, that coin had authority because it bore the image of Caesar. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. To see Jesus Christ in the flesh was to to see the glory of God dwelling in human form. He is the image of the invisible God bearing all the authority of God the Father. Now we need to be real clear because we know from Genesis you and I as human beings are made in the image of God. God made human beings and He placed them in the garden and He said, rule over all creation. But He made us in the image of God. This passage says that Jesus Christ is the image of God. The uncreated, eternal Son of God who bears all the the same authority and power and glory as God the Father does. He is the image of God. Hebrews chapter th- uh, 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. 
And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, the Son meaning, he has made him known. So there is God the Father, and then there is God the Son who was at the Father's side, who is the image of the invisible God, who has made the Father known to us, because He is truly God, one with the Father. I know this gets into a bit of the mystery of the Trinity. And there's a certain point where it breaks down and we can't understand all of it. But the biblical language is very clear that there is one God, one being who gets all of our worship. But in the Godhead, in this being named God, there are three distinct persons, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they are distinct persons so much so that the Father can talk to the Son when the Son is on earth. And even when they were in heaven. But we see it very clearly uh, at Jesus' baptism. The Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. We also see Jesus praying to the Father. So there is this personal interaction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet, we're not worshipping one God, or three gods. Yeah. Messing up my own theology here. We are not worshiping three gods. We are worshiping one God. So that they were equal in power, in glory, in might, in majesty. We, we say it is one being. So that the Son is the image of the invisible God. But He is one with His Father in all the power, in all the glory. And it's so much so that in the same way God the Father is described as being the creator of all things. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. You need to know something here about this uh, little word firstborn. Firstborn over all creation. If you ever run into a Jehovah's Witness, they will tell you this word means first created. It does not. It means firstborn. And firstborn has nothing to do with birth order or even whether or not you were born. Firstborn is a title that you get when you inherit something. In other words, when you are in charge of the estate, you could be called by the ancient language firstborn. I'll ask our lawyer later how this works in our day and age if you're, if you're still called firstborn. Yeah, but you're the boss when you get the inheritance, right? Firstborn over all creation means that Jesus Christ is the one who is in charge, the ruler uh, of all creation. Just to give you a biblical example, that firstborn doesn't always mean the one born first. Remember Jacob and Esau? Who was born first out of those two brothers? Esau. Who becomes the firstborn In the sense of getting the birthright, having the inheritance, having all the blessings and promises come to him. Jacob. It is a title that has nothing to do with when the individual was born. This passage is not saying that Jesus Christ was a created being. In fact, it tells us a verse later that he's the one who created all things. What it is saying to you and I is that Jesus Christ is the image of God rules over all creation. 
Think about that for a minute. Jesus Christ did not have to come to earth. He did not have to die on the cross. He did not have to rise again from the dead to become the king of all things. He was the king. He was firstborn over all creation. He was God above everything. By virtue of the fact that he made it all. My daughter had a birthday yesterday and she got Legos for her birthday. And so she's going to make something with those Legos. And she is now in charge of that little Lego car with that minifigure because she is the one that made it. It is hers. So also, Jesus is the one who made creation. And it is His. Look with me at verse 16. For by Him all things were created in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. So you think about the the scope of this. Heavens and earth. Visible and invisible. Everything you see here today was ultimately at the end of the day created by God. And my kids are smart, Alex, so they would be like, no, no, somebody made the book. Well, the things that God made, uh, the things that we put together in the hymnal or to make the pew, God made all of the stuff that we use to put that together. So at the end of the day, God made everything and everything that exists, whether you see it or not, whether it's down to the very little like quantum physics-y things that, that we can't even perceive, God made them. Angels and demons which have limited control over various parts of the creation. God made them. Caesar and Pilate, the the very kings and authorities that, that put Jesus on the cross. Jesus had made those things. Jesus had given them the authority to do what they did. And they only did it because Jesus allowed it. All things were created through him and for him. You, you have to understand just the, the impact here of, of the biblical language. In the Old Testament, only God, the living and true God, can create anything. Only God can create. You know, we can put together Lego sets and mud pies and, and all kinds of stuff, but we're not actually making things. We're reorganizing molecules. God makes them and speaks them into existence by the the word of His mighty power. And so in Scripture, we have laid out for us a very clear distinction, a, a line in the sand that divides God the Creator from all things which God has created. Everything, all things, anything that exists anywhere in this universe God has made it. I don't care if it's in heaven or earth or hell or wherever. God has made all of it. In some religions, you have sort of a mixing of these categories, kind of a, an integration. So that, that even today you have people that will worship the, the created things. Or that created things play a role in how the universe was birthed. I don't care if it's a a scientific explanation or maybe sort of an Eastern Buddhist type explanation. But they, they mingle that line between the creator and the creation. But the Bible says only God creates. 
And everything that God creates is his creation, and therefore not God. And if there is this line in the sand, if you will, when the Bible talks about Jesus, it does not put him on the side of the creation. It puts him on the side of the creator. Everything that um, the Bible says about God being the creator, it says also about Jesus as the son of God. Isaiah chapter 44 says this, This is what the Lord says, Your Redeemer who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord, the Maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spread out the earth by Myself. This is fascinating to me. God did this by Himself. And when the Word of God then says in some places that God the Father created these things, but then in other places that that God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the one who created, it is not contradicting this idea that God alone created by Himself. And why is it not a contradiction? Because Jesus truly is God. You see how much this matters? When we start to, to fudge this line, and start to say, like, like people in Athanasius' day, well, Jesus might have created everything else, but as a son, maybe God created him first. And then Jesus helped out. That is dead wrong. Because it says that God alone created everything. And if Jesus is involved in creating all things, then he must be Truly God. Not only this, He sustains all things. All things are made for Him. The end for which God created the universe is to glorify Himself so that He would derive pleasure from it, joy from it, worship from it, as all of it would would see and sing the praises of God. And Paul here in this passage, the Word of God says, not only was it made for the Father, It was also made for the Son. And you cannot say this about the Son unless Jesus Christ is truly God. He sustains all these things. He upholds them by the word of His power. There's a whole lot of stuff that we could go into here in the Old Testament, how God does this. There's other verses in Hebrews chapter 1 where it says, Jesus uh, sustains these things by the word of His mighty power. Uh, In Psalm 102, uh, the heavens are described as being like a garment or, or almost like a rug that you can roll up that when it gets old, like, like this suit jacket, when it gets old, you, you take it off and it will wear out. But it also says then that God never wears out because He sustains the creation. And in Psalm 102, that's taken and applied to Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is truly God. Perhaps I sound like a broken record at this point. But this is just one of these non-negotiables of the Christian faith. This is one of these things that we, we cannot water down and say, oh well, no big deal. There are still people today that do not believe that Jesus Christ is truly God the Son. People that are very religious 
people that really like Jesus. They believe he did miracles. They believe he died on the cross. They believe he rose again from the dead. But if you do not believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you cannot be saved. One of the the places that this happens uh, very often are Jehovah Witnesses. If you've ever talked to a Jehovah Witness, they're fine saying that Jesus is a God. They're okay with the language of Son of God. And so it's very tempting to sometimes in your conversations with them be like, okay, well, well, we're really, really close here. But that little difference that we have makes all the difference. It is a world of difference. Because they believe that Jesus Christ is a created being. They believe he is an angel first. That, that God created Jesus and then Jesus created everything else. And that is dead wrong. Jehovah Witnesses have only been around for about 100 years. Early 1900s, late 1800s, they got started. But on some of these issues, particularly who Jesus is, they preach and teach pretty much exactly the same thing that Athanasius was confronting 1,700 years ago. And Athanasius was willing to be driven out of his home because he needed and knew he needed to stand on the truth of Scripture. Where are you and I tempted to sometimes water down uh, or compromise who Jesus is? Uh, maybe it's in our, in our faith. Maybe we're okay cozying up to other people and saying, well, you don't quite believe the same about me when it comes to Jesus. But we're basically all people who worship God. It doesn't work that way. Jesus Christ has told us who he is. And the challenge for us is, Am I going to stand on it? Does this matter? Would I bend and cave and and fudge the lines? You know how close the line between defending the truth and compromising it came down to at one point in church history? It almost, this is almost not an exaggeration to say that it came down to the difference of one letter in a word. There were people that were saying, Jesus Christ is God. And then there were people saying, Jesus Christ is like God. And in the Greek language they were using at the time, the two words they had, there was one letter difference between saying those two things. And it was a simple letter I. Just, just an I with a dot. Well, they didn't dot in the Greek, but in the English, an I with a dot. And how many of us would look at that and say, it's one letter. Does it really matter? It's not the letter of that I that matters. It's the two totally different concepts that those words describe. One said that Jesus was God and this truly needs to be worshipped. And the other said, Jesus is very powerful. He's very mighty. He's very strong. He, he deserves to be lifted up. But he's only like God. 
one of the things that preserved the church during those times, particularly uh, the, the regular person in the pew, so to speak, was worship songs. People knew that it was right to sing to Jesus. And they knew if you are singing to Jesus, you are giving Him worship. And, and they knew that only God is to be worshipped. And so when someone comes along and, and starts to say, well, you know, we can't sing that hymn because it, it really says too much to worship uh, uh, Jesus, there was sort of this gut reaction. Because uh, from the time of being children, they had sung these songs and said how wonderful Jesus is. And then it suddenly becomes very clear. It means the world of difference to say Jesus is God versus saying Jesus is like God. Now think about that for yourself, for your own life. Do you worship Jesus? When we sing songs, we are not just singing to a generic God that anybody can sing us the same song to. This is one of the problems I have with certain uh, contemporary songs, some old songs as well. Uh, they get kind of... Uh, the parody is the Jesus is my boyfriend song. The idea that you can say a whole lot about Jesus, that I love him, that he's great, that he makes me feel good, and yet if you boiled down the words, you could take out the word Jesus every time and replace it with the word boyfriend or girlfriend, and it would sound exactly like the pop songs that are on the radio. That's sort of the joke. But it makes a serious point that if we are worshiping Jesus, we should say we love him. We should say we're close to him. We should acknowledge that he's our friend. But we do all of that in a context where we are saying, Jesus gets this worship. I give it to Him because He's God. Not better than the Father, right? God is the Father also and we sing songs to Him. The Holy Spirit is God also, so we sing songs to Him. It's, it's one God. But I can address Jesus as the object of worship. Jesus Christ is truly God over all creation, and it really makes all of the difference. Second, this morning, Jesus Christ takes preeminence within creation. So not only is Jesus God over all things, the firstborn over creation, he's made all of these things. Now he steps down into creation to manifest his reign and become not just the head of all creation as God, but in a unique way, the head of the church. A special, intimate relationship with His people where we are united to Him. Jesus Christ is the head of the church in His resurrection. That He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, He might be preeminent. So on the one hand, Jesus Christ is King over all things. He is preeminent, the supreme. He's God. But on the other hand, in, in stepping down into creation, he fulfills Old Testament promises and becomes a king within that creation as a human being now also. He becomes preeminent within creation. So, when he was a man on earth, he was also truly God. So, talking about Jesus, verse 19, For in him, in Jesus... 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What does Paul mean by this? Well, he says it similarly in Colossians 2.9. For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Meaning that Jesus Christ is God who took on flesh for us. He didn't give up being God. It's not like changing your jacket where you take one off and put another one on. But as God, He truly comes down and dwells in our midst, taking on all the aspects of being human. He had 100% humanity, but without sin. And the image in Scripture in John 1.14 was the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word for dwell, you could literally translate it, and he tabernacled amongst us. So remember in the Old Testament, right, there's the tabernacle that the people of God would build, and inside this tabernacle, there's the tent, and inside the tent is the Ark of the Covenant, and and the tent was covered, and the high priest could only go in there uh, once a year into the Holy of Holies place, and that's, that's the tabernacle. Remember when they built the tabernacle? Remember what, what God does? This huge, great cloud, the, the glory of God descends onto that tabernacle so that when they're looking at the tent, they are seeing the glory of God dwelling in there. When people looked at the body, the form of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is so truly human that he has a human soul. He has human DNA. If you, if you prick him, you know, you could take a blood test for Jesus if they would have had modern medical things. And, and you could find out what kind of blood type he had, whether A, B, A, B, O negative. I, I don't know, but it would have been real blood. If you would have taken an X-ray of Jesus, he would have had a heart pumping that blood and, and bones and ribs and all of the things that, that make us human. But to look at Jesus was to see the glory of God like the people in the Old Testament would see it in the tabernacle. You were looking at God in the flesh. He is truly God. He he takes this upon Himself. And so it fulfills a, a prophecy in the Old Testament. Psalm 89, verse 27. David is given this promise that he would have a descendant. And it said, I will make him the firstborn, there's that word again, the highest of the kings of the earth. So the promise was David would have a descendant and this guy would be the king of all the kings, the ruler of all creation, and the one who fulfills that is Jesus. Because he takes up residence in our humanity to save us and now to rule over us as one of us. Think about that. This is why he's called the head of the church. On the one hand, from all eternity past, he ruled over everything from the riches of heaven on his throne above. But now he takes up this humanity. He dies and rises again so that we might share in new life with him And he has a special, intimate relationship with us and rules over us in that way. Since I'm stuck on an Athanasius kick today, Athanasius writes a little book called The Incarnation of the Word. 
It's talking about how God, Jesus was truly God and became flesh. But he has this wonderful image, this, this wonderful word picture of what it means for Jesus to become human. He says this, And like as when a great king entered into some large city and has taken up his abode in one of the houses, such a city is at all events held worthy of high honor. Nor does an enemy or bandit any longer descend upon it and subject it. On the contrary, it is thought entitled to all care because the king's because of the king's having taken up residence in a single house there, so too has it become with the monarch of all. Jesus is like the king of all creation who comes down and takes up residence as one of us. And it assures us that human beings have value as made in the image of God. But it also assures us that we are precious to Jesus. That as created beings, to use the analogy, all the houses in the city matter because God comes and sets up His residence there and reigns from one of those houses, if you will, reigning as the son of David, a human being. And he does this so that he might reconcile all things to himself. Look at verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We need to back up here a little bit and paint sort of the big picture of Scripture. That God creates Adam and Eve to rule over creation. And when Adam and Eve rebel, not only do they sin, but all of the creation is plunged into sin as well. Why do we have slugs that eat at our garden and destroy our crops and weeds that that grow up there and choke out the good flowers that we want to plant in the garden? I'm not saying slugs are part of the curse, I guess, but just this idea that, that the creation is cursed. The creation now has death in it, all because of Adam's sin. God's plan is not just to save souls so that we go to heaven. It is that, but God's plan is also to make what? The new heavens and the new earth to set right everything that went wrong in the Garden of Eden and take creation to its final end, to its final goal where it is in alignment with God, at peace with God, where if we have gardens in the new heavens and the new earth, we will enjoy God's creation. And I can imagine we will make big, ripe, red, juicy tomatoes that will not get weeds in our garden and they will not um, have bugs eating them. Because the creation will be right. In the new heavens and the new earth, I imagine my children will not be afraid of spiders. Because spiders will not be in rebellion to the creation. They will be fulfilling God's purpose for the creation. So that when it says, Jesus Christ came to reconcile all things to himself, whether on heaven and on earth, it is saying that God will put the creation back in the right place 
where it's supposed to be, how it's supposed to be. This does not mean that everyone will automatically be saved. Only those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved and experience that reconciliation. But Paul tells us in Romans 8, the the creation is is groaning. It's it's like a, a woman in labor, just moaning and groaning in pain and waiting for us to get the same resurrection that Jesus got. So that when we get this resurrection, God can remake all of the creation and finally put everything right. You see, Jesus doesn't just reign from up on heaven. He so cares for us and for His creation that He steps down into creation so that He can take on true humanity, have real blood that He could shed for us so that He could make all things new. The resurrection is a guarantee to you and I if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be raised from the dead. We will have a part in this wonderful new creation. Sometimes we wonder, well, what are we going to be doing in heaven? I don't really know. But I know we will get resurrection bodies in the end. And we will be in the new heavens and the new earth. And the picture is that the glory of God will descend upon that creation. There won't need to be a sun, a physical sun, because God's glory will just be illuminating all of these wonderful things. And all of this is ultimately accomplished because Jesus Christ became preeminent, the first, the highest rank, the supreme one within His creation. Who is like that? If I was already a king, I would be content to sit in my castle. If my minions were rebelling, I would say, that's fine. I am very comfortable in my castle with a wonderful banquet table, and I will stay here and enjoy the riches of my castle. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that Jesus Christ gave up the riches of heaven and for our sake became poor. He had power over all of creation He had made all of the thrones and the dominions and the powers and the authorities. And he comes down and he takes up residence so that he could set the world right and bring it back into peace and harmony with God and forgive our sins. That's what Jesus does. That's who he is. What's the the big takeaway today? It's holding fast to this supremacy of Jesus Christ. Hopefully I've said some things today that you already know. I hope you already know that Jesus Christ is truly God. But you know, while we're here on earth, we're like in the midst of a battle against enemies. People that want us to compromise. People that want us to to give in. Whether it's Satan or the devil or or human beings or, or false truths that are out, false beliefs that are out there that aren't true. And today is one of those moments where I want to just kind of be like a a captain. where We're all on the line of this battle. And our king is going to come back one day. And I'm just like the the soldiers of old, running back and forth on the line and saying, hold the line. Jesus is God. It really matters. He 
will come back. There's a story, true story, uh, during World War II, the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, that was the last German advancement. And, and one of the, the 101st Airborne Division got completely surrounded by the Germans during this Battle of the Bulge. And, and they were surrounded and they were told to surrender. And oftentimes that's how we feel, right? We're surrounded by the enemy. I might as well throw it in. Why do I go to church? Why do I, why do I, I stand so hard on this doctrine that Jesus is God? We could get along with a lot more people if we just fudged it a little bit. Anyways, in this story, the, the Germans came uh, in and they told the general to surrender. And, and the general's name was McCulloch, I think is what it was. And you know what his response to them was? I love it. Just one word. Nuts. You're nuts. You know, I'm not surrendering. No way at all. And when it comes to your faith in who Jesus Christ is, I hope that you will look at the enemy, look at the pressure that is weighing down on you, that wants you to compromise, maybe wants you to surrender. Maybe those days where you think it's easier, it'd be easier to walk away from the faith than try to obey God in some way. I want you to look at who Jesus is, your King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming for you to remove the enemies that surround us. And in effect, you can say, if they want you to surrender, it's nuts. Because Jesus Christ is supreme over all things. I would rather surrender my life to him who is going to triumph over all things than surrender and give in to the enemy. I want you to know this morning that Jesus Christ is supreme over all. And he stands in heaven on your behalf as the head of you and I, the head of the church. As we sing in the hymns when we worship him, he shows his wounded hands and he claims us as his own. And because of his rank, he is worthy of all our worship. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we just ask this morning that you would speak to us from your word. Build us up, Lord. Maybe just encourage us. Remind us uh, that these truths really matter. That, that, that literally our, our brothers and sisters around the world today are, are putting their lives at risk on the line. In some cases being beheaded because they are confessing that Jesus Christ is God. Down through the ages, men and women have been burned at the stake, crucified, tortured, thrown in jail, run out of their cities, and endured all these things because you are truly God. And they wouldn't fudge on that. Lord, we need that in our hearts. May this be like fuel that that just fires up our passions. And it is a wondrous thing to worship you and profess before others. Jesus Christ is Lord of all things. He is God the Son who died on the cross and rose again from the dead and has ascended into the right hand of the Father. And one day you are coming again. And we just look forward to that. In your name we pray. Amen.